Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Today, we're starting a short two-part series. And if you've never read the four chapters of the book of Ruth through a lens other than one where Ruth and Boaz run off together to a small private Christian school, equally passionate about Jesus and their wedding night, or have never heard of the term social reproduction, do I have a two-part podcast called Ruth and the Hidden Labor of Social Reproduction for you. The main premise of the series is this. While communities and economies including all the capitalist wealth accumulated by the richest people throughout the world, are fundamentally dependent upon reproductive work, or the labor of social reproduction. Capitalism imposes this people-making labor on some people but not others. It devalues this people-making labor. It renders it insignificant. And it hides it from our sight when we make economic transactions when we buy the stuff we buy and sell our labor to our bosses. All right, so reproductive work is regulated, it's devalued, and it's hidden. But to really drive home the point, I'll put it like this. None of the profits taken by multi-millionaire and billionaire employers, none of the big bucks acquired by the banks, private investors, and developers, none of the rents that landlords privately and exclusively accumulate Not a single dime of any paycheck you and I have ever received as workers would ever happen without reproductive work, without the labor of social reproduction, without someone ensuring we have the most basic means to survive into the future. It's that important for the economies that serve the interests of the ruling elite, and it's that foundational to yours and I's relational well-being, even existence. Yet, reproductive work takes a lot of people, a lot of energy, and a lot of effort. And so, the potential danger of acknowledging the significance of this labor, the importance of this work, the value and meaning and well-being this work brings to all of our lives, is that if reproductive work was more democratically and communally shared, if it was collectivized, if it was treated as central and meaningful work in our communities, Our profit-oriented values and our capitalist flows of private wealth and power would end up transformed. And as you can imagine, the small group of elites and the few families who are currently at the top of the global economy don't like the sounds of that, which is why they need to keep it not just imposed on some groups, not just devalued, but also hidden and disguised. Okay, okay. We've said a lot already, but don't worry, because we're going to take our time, and I'm going to do my best to give a little introduction to this stuff in these two episodes. I'm learning with you. We're learning together. Let's keep going. And while we're going to spend a good chunk of time next month on capital's primary goal, it's worth stressing that the reason why capitalism wants to pull the wool over all our eyes concerning reproductive work is because at the end of the day, at the end of the month, And now for some, at the end of every nanosecond, capital has to grow. Profits have to increase. Wealth has to expand. Wealth and power are the two interlocking motives behind this all. 
Capital will do everything it can to legitimize and normalize its pursuit of profit maximization, no matter the costs levied onto others. And these two episodes are going to focus on just one of the many things capital does for the sake of profit, the regulation, devaluing, and disguising of the sometimes low-wage but mostly completely unpaid labor of social reproduction. In the next episode, we'll talk a bunch about this people-making labor. But for today, how might the story of Ruth help us think about capitalism's tendency to enforce this kind of work, render it insignificant, and then magically hide it underneath the advancements of others? Ruth is depicted as a loyal companion and servant to everyone who wields power over her. Without hesitation, Ruth joyfully submits to Naomi's every whim. Ruth is also depicted as desiring of Boaz, the powerful owner of land and labor. But would it be that difficult for us to imagine a world in which, on one hand, the work of an impoverished female immigrant who is removed from her community and land of birth is imposed upon her and enforced, while, on the other hand, her contribution is devalued and disguised? Let's take a look. A famine has struck the land of Judah, and so, in their vulnerability, Elimelech, the patriarch of this family, and his wife Naomi flee with their children in search of something pretty important, food. And they end up in a place called Moab. To the ancient Judean audience, Moab would have represented everything not Judah. Moab was not the land of Judah, was not populated with the people of Judah, and was not ruled by the God of Judah. In our story, Moab is a symbol not only of otherness, but of inferiority. And this Moabite inferior otherness that will be prescribed to Ruth here in a little bit is the main lens I want us to dialogue with this story through. So while Elimelech and Naomi were living in Moab, the two sons, according to verse 4, took Moabite wives. But it wasn't long until Elimelech and the two sons die, leaving Naomi a childless widow. So right off the bat, Naomi, the Judean, becomes a childless widow and inherits her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Naomi decides to return to the land and people of Judah, and the author tells us that Naomi graciously encourages her daughters-in-law to stay in their homeland and find new husbands for the sake of their own security. Orpah, on the one hand, whose name means back of the neck, kisses her mother-in-law goodbye and is like, Peace! Typical Moabite. But Ruth, whose name means friend and companion, surprises us all by clinging to Naomi. If you've ever heard this story before, you've probably heard it as a lesson about loyalty, friendship, or obedience. And I want to acknowledge that loyalty is a prominent theme throughout this text. But when we consider Ruth's Moabiteness, her inferior otherness, might we be able to imagine a less-than-dignifying relationship between Naomi and her foreign-born immigrant servant? While the author paints the immigrant female daughter-in-law as someone who is loyal, obedient, and friendly to all who govern her, what if the relationship between Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz wouldn't be as pretty as the author suggests, at least not from the perspective of Ruth? On one hand, the story could be read as an encouragement to welcome non-Judean immigrants into the community. I want to acknowledge that. 
But on the other hand, and this is how I want us to approach the text, the book of Ruth could illuminate for us the ways in which the labor and bodies of people, but mostly women, in vulnerable positions like Ruth, are often enforced, rendered insignificant, and erased from the stories we tell about ourselves and our communities. Chapter 1, it could be said, is not at all about Ruth. Chapter 1 is about Naomi, a Judean childless widow who, having lost her standing in the community, is returning to the land of Judah with a childless daughter-in-law at her service. Although Naomi herself is in an incredibly vulnerable position, power would not be mutual or equal between the two. As we'll see more clearly here in a little bit, all the decision-making power lies in the hands of Naomi, so much so that Ruth's labor power and her body are under the governance of Naomi. In chapter 2, Ruth sets out to secure some food, the necessary means of survival, the basics for her mother-in-law and for herself. Because as we all know, without stuff like food, we would die. We would not survive into the future. We would not be able to reproduce. And while the author paints a pretty picture of a loyal servant, a diligent worker, a real go-getter, who takes the initiative to labor all day in terribly dangerous working conditions, can we think of any reason why an author might tell a story about a hard-working, foreign-born woman who gleefully meets the needs of her owner? I mean, I couldn't help but think of the abundance of U.S. literature portraying black female slaves and domestic workers as happy mammies, and black males, particularly before Reconstruction, as docile, loyal sambos. Laboring in these fields as a young unmarried woman would have been incredibly risky. Perhaps, instead of Ruth deciding to spend her entire day in the fields for Naomi and for herself, as verse 2 tells us, maybe that would have actually been a decision made by the person in charge. And as Ruth is under the heat of the sun, picking up the scraps left over in the fields for people rendered a kind of surplus or excess population, much like the disposable people we talked about in our episodes on Tamar, we are introduced to the main character of chapter 2, a wealthy and powerful patriarch named Boaz. Boaz is a prominent owner of land and labor. He is the lucky guy, hashtag blessed, who has inherited his father's power, land, and servants. Now, Boaz has some specific roles to play in this community, and one of his roles is to tell people what their work will be and how to do it. He, we might say, owns the necessary means used in the process of production, the land, the tools, and the materials used by his workers and family members. And Boaz also has power over all the fruits produced by his servants and his family members' labor, and distributes it however he sees fit. So, while the majority of people spend part of their day producing their own subsistence and means of survival, the great and powerful Boaz lives off the fruits collectively produced by other people's labor under his control, thanks to the customary rights of the time. Of course, he doesn't privately possess stuff like we do today. Our Western modern conceptions of property would have been unthinkable for folks of ancient Mesopotamia. But I think it's fair to say that a good bit of authority and power and wealth is concentrated into the hands of Boaz. 
In chapter two, the author spends a lot of time painting a picture of this great owner of land and labor as generous and compassionate toward the foreign-born servant of the recently returned widow. He even assumes the role of protector, we might even say possessor, of Ruth's body, her reproductive capacity and sexuality, by telling his male servants not to sexually harass or assault her. Apparently, as the boss, Boaz has the power to say whose body is off-limits and whose body is free to be seized by less powerful men. And after Ruth is depicted as grateful for Boaz's blessings and interest in her, the Moab returns to her Judean owner with all the fruits of her day's labor. Naomi eats to her full and then gives the leftovers to Ruth. How nice. Again, Something I want us to pay attention to here is that despite this book being named Ruth, Naomi is really the main character of chapter 1, and Boaz is the central figure of chapter 2. Ruth, of course, has an important role in the story, a role of an impoverished, childless, laboring daughter-in-law, but these first two chapters have really been about the return of a widow who brings with her a childless female servant from another land and a powerful patriarch who takes notice of the widow's servant. And now, the stage has been set. Naomi, who is no longer seen as a respectable and honorable person in her community, is back in Judah and has under her control a childless foreign-born daughter-in-law. Boaz, a prominent owner of land and labor, has noticed Ruth. Let's see what happens next. Chapter 3 starts off with Naomi devising a plan. You see, as a childless widow... Naomi has lost all security and sense of community in her life. She is not an honorable and dignified member of the community without children, particularly male children. And so, understandably, in such a vulnerable and desperate position, Naomi is ready to do what she has to do in order to regain access to both the necessary means of survival and to her sense of belonging. And this is what she does. Naomi tells Ruth to clean herself up and put on something nice. She says, Boaz will be at the threshing floor tonight where the barley gets separated, and he's probably going to have such a fun time that he'll end up drunk and passed out. So Naomi tells her daughter-in-law to wait until he's asleep, sneak in, and verse 4 says, uncover his feet and lie down. Now, to Uncover someone's feet and lie down with them is not the same thing as taking somebody's socks off after a long day's work. It's more like ripping their pants off. Naomi knows that Boaz is going to be drunk, and so she sends Ruth to have sex with him in hopes that this would get Ruth an in with Boaz. And by the way the author tells us Boaz is pleasantly startled, it seems to have worked. As will become clear in, the, in chapter 4, basically Ruth is a message from Naomi to Boaz, and the message is this, take this girl as your wife, and you can get the land that belongs to my dead husband, Elimelech. I'll probably get a son, which will restore me to a place of respect in this community, and keep me tied to the land of my husband, and you will get more land and potentially a male heir, which means more power. Hell, maybe even a king will come from our lineage. (laughs) Like that'll ever happen. For a person like Ruth, the Moabite, the inferior other, we can imagine that this would not be about loyalty to Naomi. Nor is this a gross, 
21st century Hollywood film where, against all odds, two individuals of two different classes end up falling in love with each other. And Ruth definitely didn't just take a drunk guy's sandals off and lay down at some stanky feet. No, Ruth is a survivor. Ruth's body, her mind, her capacity for relationship, her labor, is seen as the means through which other people get to where they want to go. But she is not some passive object without agency, without a resistant spirit. No, she is a fighter. But she is forced to fight in these particular conditions. And so, Naomi sends Ruth to Boaz because she's got her own plans. Boaz receives the message and likes what he can get out of it. While Ruth is fundamental to both Naomi's and Boaz's plans, the well-being and personhood of the Moabite is not the concern of these relationships. Ruth is more like a pillar, being used to prop up other people's kingdoms. In chapter 4, everyone's plans come to the forefront. Boaz brings together all the other major players in the community. We might say the biggest bosses, landlords, and developers among the people. He sits them down and says to the guy next in line for Elimelech's property, Look, go ahead and take the property. But if you take it, you got to take the Moabite as a wife, too. And to preserve his own name, the guy is like, No way, you take it. And that's exactly what he does. Boaz, the Judean owner of labor and land, is really the main character of the majority of the final chapter. He organizes the meeting. He celebrates his big win. The people of Judah bless his name and his house by asking the Lord to give him children through Ruth the Moabite. Then, once Ruth births the child, the neighborhood comes together and reminds us who this story was about in the first place. In verse 17 we read, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Through Ruth, Naomi and the people of Judah have been redeemed. Sure, Ruth is said to be more to Naomi than seven sons, but she gets her whopping Mother's Day meal and flowers because of the difficult and strenuous work she did under the command of Naomi. No one really cares about the immigrant, the female worker, She's just needed by Boaz, Naomi, and the community to get their happy ending. Capitalism has a way of requiring and demanding the reproductive work of particular people, while simultaneously disguising their labor and their contributions behind labor that produces profits. It uses, as we'll talk more about next time, social constructs like gender and race and citizenship as well as hyper-individualistic ideologies to regulate and hide the people-making labor of social reproduction. And it does this in order to rationalize and justify the unjust economic systems and unequal flows of power that the ruling elite, the 1%, the ultra-rich, benefit most from. Let me say that again. Reproductive work is systemically enforced, devalued, and hidden because it is more profitable, more beneficial, not for you, not for your family, not for your loved ones, not for your communities, but for the elite, the richest employer capitalists, financial capitalists, and landlord capitalists who extract wealth produced by everyone else. In our next episode, we're going to talk about what all social reproduction entails, 
how it is magically disguised from our sight. Why? It is disproportionately expected of one side of the gender binary and not the other. And why it is so profitable for the wealthiest elite to keep it that way. But to wrap this all up, let's return to Ruth. In our story, the agony, the sacrifice, the risk, the suffering of Ruth is the backbone of Naomi's and the peoples of Judah's redemption. Ruth, the foreign-born female servant, the inferior other, is literally the means in which a poor childless widow, a powerful owner of land and labor, and the community claim their place in the prestigious lineage of King David. It was Ruth's physical and mental faculties that were spent in the fields. It was Ruth's reproductive organs that were sent to Boaz late that night. And it was Ruth's reproductive power that birthed Obed, the son born to Naomi, the heir of Boaz, the ancestor of Judah's future King David. Might we be able to imagine a world in which legitimately vulnerable people like Naomi are not compelled to gain access to the means of survival and seize their restoration into the community by using people worse off than they. A world where communities like Judah are not incentivized to build their future on the backs of groups or individuals who are excluded and othered. A world where power and wealth is not concentrated into the hands of a few Boazes. Contrary to what we've been taught, the labor of social reproduction doesn't have to be imposed upon some people and not others. It doesn't have to be devalued and be seen as insignificant. And it definitely doesn't have to remain hidden and privatized. An alternative way of being in relationship with each other is possible. In fact, the liberation of the vast majority of people, the redemption not just of one people, but of all creation depends upon our joining God in the work of remaking, reforming, and reorganizing our communal way of relating to the work of reproduction. But first, we have to come to value and appreciate and respect the people and the labor that capitalism would not have as value at all. Thanks for listening, and a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.